Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Growing up in the Maryland suburbs outside of D.C., Broadway was just far enough away to seem like another world, a magical one. So it's no surprise that some of my fondest memories are of the train trips I'd take with my parents to go and see Broadway shows. First was the musical Barnum, starring Jim Dale. I joined the circus like I wanted to when I was a kid. After that, I think it was Annie. I don't need anything but you. Both were great shows. But the trip we took in February of 1983 was next level. We were going to see a show that was nothing short of an event. I loved Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical Cats even before I saw it, and not in an ironic way. I played that original Broadway cast album until the vinyl almost melted. The song Memory? Instantly unforgettable. My friend Mario and I would listen to it over and over on the stereo in his family room. And when Betty Buckley would hit that big note, I would grab the nearest sofa pillow and bite it. Touch me. It's so easy to me. Look, I was only 13 years old. I honestly didn't know how else to channel the urges it tapped into. When I finally saw the show as a much more sophisticated 14-year-old, my expectations were actually exceeded. That set, the costumes, and that dancing. My parents and I sat in the very last row of the balcony, so the cats who came into the audience didn't come anywhere near us. But so what? It was still impossibly exciting. Afterwards, I went back home to Bethesda, Maryland with an official cat's sweatshirt the one with the two yellow cat eyes on the back. 
I wore that sweatshirt to Pyle Junior High almost every day for the rest of the winter. I ended up writing a letter to every member of the cast, twice. I only received a couple of responses, but I was absolutely thrilled that one of them was from Mr. Mistopheles himself, Tim Scott. This dancer, when he did 24 consecutive fuetes, he took my breath away. I didn't know that those wild spins were called fuetes or even how to spell the word. All I knew was that I was watching someone defy the laws of physics. Tim Scott's letter to me was short, but gracious. I was just so happy that he answered. But back then, I had no idea of the offstage drama that was quietly building for Tim Scott and for many in the cast of Cats, for the Broadway community at large, and especially for the gay men who were an essential part of that community. AIDS was discovered first in young homosexual men. There is no cure, and it is often fatal. By the fall of 1982, when Cats opened on Broadway, AIDS had become a health crisis. By the end of the decade, it would claim the lives of over 100,000 Americans and would devastate the arts world. In the original cast of Cats alone, AIDS would cut down four dancers at the very top of their careers and in peak physical form. That's the tragedy of the whole thing, isn't it? That's a microcosm of the big picture. You've got a show that's about youth and vitality, and these are people who were taken down in the prime of their lives. This is the story of one of those dancers. It's a story of talent. Beautiful, beautiful dancer. You can't imagine all of the tricks that he did. It was just absolutely incredible. It's a story of dreams. I'll never forget. He said, you know what? I just want to be the best dancer I could possibly be and be on Broadway. Most of all, it's a love story. One night he turned and looked at me and I looked back at him and there was this long, meaningful moment. So I, I like to say that I fell in love with him when he was dressed as a cat. <laughs> From CBS Sunday Morning and iHeart, I'm Moraka, and this is Mobituaries. This Mobit, Timothy Scott, February 24th, 1988, Death of a Dancer. My parents splurged and they brought me the $5 souvenir program. Right. And inside, there's an autograph, Best 1983 Ken Page. Oh my goodness. Oh, wonderful. Look at that. And I had to thank you for stopping on 7th Avenue when it was really cold in February of 1983 and signing my souvenir program. Oh, well, see, we didn't know it, but this day was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking to, well, really gushing over, actor Ken Page, who played the role of Old Deuteronomy in the original Broadway cast of Cats. And be careful. When I saw Ken Page in Cats, I was already a fan of his from the musical review Ain't Misbehavin'. I'm gonna sit right down and write myself a letter. Yes, yes. Mm. You might know Ken Page best as the voice of the evil Oogie Boogie in Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Mr. Oogie Boogie says there's trouble close at hand. You better pay attention now, cause I'm the boogeyman. 
But I'm talking to Ken today because of his connection to Cats co-star Timothy Scott. You see, Cats wasn't the first time Ken and Tim worked together. They both began their professional stage careers as teenagers at the legendary St. Louis Municipal Opera Theater, commonly known as the Muni, the oldest and largest outdoor musical theater in North America. He was in the dance ensemble and I was in the singing ensemble. He danced. I will say I moved well. And I will never forget this day. There's a beautiful fountain between a rehearsal space and the backstage. And he was sitting up at the top and the water was sort of running through his feet and everything. And he said to me, he said, you know what? I just want to be the best dancer I could possibly be and be on Broadway. And I said, yeah, me too. I want to be, I want to be on Broadway too. You know, I was 18. So he must have been probably 17. As it turns out, their dreams of Broadway were not far-fetched. Timothy Scott Schnell was born on September 15, 1955, in Morton Grove, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. Tim had something of a late start. A lot of dancers start training as early as four years old. Tim Scott didn't start taking dance lessons until he was a teenager. But it was clear from the get-go, he was a natural. He went straight from high school into show business. After the Muni, Tim Scott moved to New York City. Success came quickly. Broadway impresario Michael Bennett cast Tim in the first international company of A Chorus Line. Soon after, Tim was touring nationally in Bob Fosse's smash musical review, Dancing. We got spins, leaps, jumps, cartwheels, and other incredible body gyrations that I am not allowed to mention on television. Dancing. Tim was what's called an ensemble dancer. Back then, they were called gypsies, which actress Bonnie Franklin defined at the 1976 Tony Awards. Uh, maybe I better explain to the audience at home that the term gypsy lovingly applies to all dancers in the Broadway theater. They were called that because they traveled from company to company, from chorus line to chorus line, constantly auditioning for their next gig. This was and is the life of a dancer. Ladies and gentlemen, Shields and Yardell. In 1980, Tim toured with the popular comedy mime duo Shields and Yarnell. Yes, this was a time when mimes could be superstars. To be a pepper, original like a pepper, all you gotta do is take... The next year, Tim danced on a ceiling in a big Dr. Pepper commercial. Yeah! Then, in 1982, came the casting call for Cats. I think we all had a sense that it was a really big deal. We didn't really know what the show was about. You know, I asked my agent, I said, what, can you tell me what it's about? And she goes, cats. And I'm like, yeah, but what's the story? And she goes, it's about cats. That, my friends, is the one and only Betty Buckley, the woman who caused me to bite that sofa pillow all those years ago when she hit that note. Touch me. <laughs> Oh, I love that. When I first met you and you told me that story, I was so touched by that. That's amazing to me. So great. She was called in for the pivotal role of Grizabella, the bedraggled, past her prime glamour cat. And so I went in to audition and 
they told my agent that they weren't going to consider me because I radiated health and well-being and they wanted someone who radiated death and dying. Lucky for us, she got the role, joining a cast that included Ken Page and Tim Scott. So the first day of Cats, I walked up to him and I said, well, I guess you're officially one of the great best dancers on Broadway. And particularly in that role, that was a very, very coveted role. Tim was cast as Mr. Mistopheles, the conjuring cat. Here he is singing. We can dive through the air like a flying trapeze. In a show that was focused on spectacular musical numbers and not a whole lot on plot, Tim's role was one of the most challenging. It required a dancer with extraordinary technique. But Tim had something more than that. He had presence. He had these amazing eyes. His eyes were like blue beams. He also had this sort of mysteriousness about him. And it was always there. The first time I saw him dance, I found it uncanny that I had this rush of joy through my body that was completely spontaneous. And it was not an intellectual experience of like, oh, that guy dances really well. It was like, oh, this kind of breathless exquisite joy watching him. And I was like, who's that kid? You know, I mean, why is he able to do that? Okay, sidebar. Cats is, more than anything, a dance show. For the actors who had limited background in dance, like Betty Buckley and Ken Page, rehearsing for Cats was like Marine Corps basic training. The Winter Garden Theater was their Paris Island. There were five of us that were like normal people, you know, and the rest of them were like amazing. Betty and I both had to do the full on dance class, you know, and you had to do it. I had to do cartwheels across the floor in front of this incredible company of dancers and cats. And Ken Page and I just clung to each other. And he, I was like, I'm going to die. And he was like, I'm, I'm right with you. And it was like so humiliating. Old Deuteronomy and Grisabella are not cartwheeling cats. We should be clear about no, that. No, we should be clear. <laughs> well, you have no idea. <laughs> now, when the show finally opened in October of 1982, it didn't get great reviews. But so what? Reviews are about the here and now. Cats, as the commercial tagline pointed out, was now and forever. Cats, now and forever at the Winter Garden Theater. It was the show to see and be seen at. Andy Warhol, Diana Ross, Frank Zappa, Cary Grant, Mary Tyler Moore. Those are just a few of the big names who showed up. Then it swept the Tonys. Betty Buckley won for Best Featured Actress in a Musical. I want to thank my mom and my dad and my brother Norman, my other brothers. and <laughs> That brother she thanked, Norman, even though he wasn't in the show... His life was about to be changed by it. Oh, I was very much a country boy. I probably still am at heart, you know, my most essential self. It was an exciting time for me, but I was also um, a little lost amongst all the hubbub. On the other side of the break, Grisabella's younger brother and Mr. Mistopheles meet. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. 
With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. What was it like having your little brother backstage with you at Cats? Well, at first, I mean, I was really happy that he was there. And my brother and I, you know, have been at points in our lives very close That's Betty Buckley talking about her little brother, Norman Buckley. Back in the early 80s, when she was starring in Cats, Norman was new to New York. Sister and brother may have been close, but Betty didn't know that Norman was gay. We grew up in Texas with a military father, and, you know, it wasn't something that was certainly discussed or uh, we even considered. So he was staying at my apartment uh, when he first came to New York and was coming out as a gay person, and I didn't know what was going on. So he left some of his journals out for me to see, and I read some entries and was shocked, was like, what is this? And so there were some big confrontations between he and I, and I can freely admit that I don't think I handled those very well. Norman describes himself as a country boy back then. What was he like? Was he innocent? Was he very boyish? Totally innocent. Oh, my God. That's why I was scared. Wet behind the ears. Delicate, artistic boy. Yeah, I knew he was 27, but still, to me, he was always my little baby brother who was a vulnerable, sweet kid. Today, Norman Buckley is an accomplished TV director, having worked on over 40 shows, including The O.C., Gossip Girl, and Pretty Little Liars. Does this dress look slutty to you? Not really. The sluttier, the better. Back then, Norman was working as an editing room assistant on the movie Easy Money, just across the street from the Winter Garden Theater. I would generally uh, just visit with her in her dressing room until she had to go back on stage. Norman's favorite place in the theater was the catwalk high above the stage. That's where he'd watch the end of the show, when Grizabella ascends on a giant tire to the heavyside layer, the equivalent of cat heaven. At least I think that's what it is. That's actually the first time I had an encounter with Tim Scott, because that was where he would make his big entrance for his big number as Mr. Mistopheles. He was lowered on a rope from that same catwalk. 
For a long period of time, he didn't even register that I was up there with him. And then one night he turned and looked at me and I looked back at him and there was this long, meaningful moment. Tim may have been dressed as a cat with lots of cat makeup, but Norman was spellbound. He had very intense eyes. He was kind of otherworldly looking. I was much taller than him. Norman was 6'1", Tim 5'7". We looked a little bit like Matt and Jeff. Some days later, after the show, Norman and his sister Betty shared a big checker taxi cab with Tim. During the ride, Norman and Tim experienced another wordless moment of connection. This was a much more profound encounter. At that moment, I thought, oh, this person is going to be significant in your life. You really thought that there? I, very much so. I can remember it as though it happened yesterday. I looked at him. I took him in. He was taking me in. And I thought, this is it. The very next night, Norman mustered his courage and stood in the doorway of Tim's dressing room at intermission. And I said, do you want to have dinner? And he said, yes. And I was like, great. And uh, that was it. Is that the kind of thing you could have imagined yourself doing even six months before? I I can't even imagine myself doing that now. (laughs) So it's, uh, I think I met him the next night on the corner. I still didn't want to tell my sister that I was uh, seeing somebody in her show. Norman says the chemistry was instant. Was he funny? Oh, very funny. He had a great sense of humor. I laughed a lot at his jokes. Oh, good. There's got to be at least one laugher in the relationship. (laughs) But Betty was concerned. In New York City, the whole gay scene in the 1980s, you know, was wild. And I was terrified for him. I was just basically scared. And we didn't know what AIDS was quite yet. In fact, when AIDS was first reported, it wasn't even called AIDS. A mystery disease known as the gay plague has become an epidemic unprecedented in the history of American medicine. The lifestyle of some male homosexuals has triggered an epidemic of a rare form of cancer. A mysterious newly discovered disease which affects mostly homosexual men. When did the disease become real to you? Well, you know, it's that trajectory that you see so wonderfully portrayed in Longtime Companion. It really was a thing where people started whispering and things started popping up in the newspaper and people started making calls saying, did you hear about this thing that's going around? That's Ken Page again. He's referring to the 1989 movie Longtime Companion, directed by Norman René, who ultimately died from AIDS himself. The film opens on the morning of July 3rd, 1981. The characters wake up to the ominous New York Times article by Lawrence K. Altman, the first in a mainstream publication to make reference to the disease that would be called AIDS. They immediately begin phoning each other. Hello? Have you seen the paper? No, I was just sitting down. Have you got it? Yeah. Open the page A20. You can't miss it. Do you see the paper? I'm in the step. Oh, well, just listen. Rare cancer seen in 41 homosexuals. By the time Katz was in rehearsal, concern was burgeoning into a sense of alarm. Then you started to hear, did you know so-and-so? I heard they're not well. They have, they have that gay cancer, right? There was fear everywhere. Ken remembers when early in the epidemic, he was working in Los Angeles and went to pick up a friend at the airport. Ken was stunned by the friend's appearance. 
He was a good 25 pounds lighter. And bless him, he was saying, well, I got this rash. I want to get in the sun so I can get rid of this rash. And I feel bad about it to this very day, thinking to myself, I don't know, do I want him staying in my house? He came to me for solace and comfort, but I was afraid of what that all meant. And I can honestly say that I, I don't think I handled it as well as I could have, but it was typical for what everybody was experiencing. Even after the generic-sounding acronym AIDS, Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome, was coined in September of 1982, it felt like the full force of blame for the disease was being placed squarely on gay men. Of course, being gay was already stigmatized. The American Psychiatric Association had only removed homosexuality from its list of mental disorders in 1973. And in 1982, only one state, Wisconsin, had a law on the books making it illegal to fire people simply for being gay. Coming out of the closet, never easy to begin with, was even scarier when it seemed to carry a death sentence. For me, just realizing I was gay at the time, I was 12 years old when AIDS was first being widely reported, wasn't just fraught, it was frightening. I vividly remember a day in eighth grade when a teacher finally talked to us about AIDS. The girl who sat in front of me turned around, looked straight at me and said, that's what you're going to get. Many years later, she reached out to me on social media to apologize. Of course, I forgave her. It was junior high. We were all incredibly mean to each other. Once Norman and Tim were officially a couple, Betty gave her blessing. So I was really relieved in so many ways that Tim was his first great love. When she did find out about the relationship with Tim, she was very approving. I told her, and she hesitated for a moment, thought about it, and she said, well, you picked the right one. She said, I can see this. I loved Tim, and of course I loved my brother, so ultimately I was like, well, <laughs> it's not any of my business, and I have to say I love them both, so there we go. But while Betty may have been relieved, Tim Scott himself was increasingly worried. AIDS was always a specter that kind of hung over our relationship. Tim had actually been involved with someone who was one of the really early AIDS cases. That young man was dying during previews of Cats. Tim would go from the theater sometimes to his hospital room and sit with him. Now, bear in mind, in 1982, an AIDS test was still three years away, and any life-saving treatment was 14 years away. Uh, we had a hairdresser named Paul Lopez who worked on Ain't Misbehaving, and he got sick, and he wasn't feeling well like on Wednesday, matinee. He wasn't doing well. Thursday, he came in. They said, you really aren't well. You should go home. Friday, he went into the hospital. Saturday, Sunday, he was unconscious by Monday. And he died on Tuesday. And that was from Wednesday, not even a week later. He was gone. The federal government wasn't slow to act. It didn't act at all. On October 15th, 1982, just a week after Katz opened, President Reagan's press secretary, Larry Speaks, was asked about AIDS by a reporter named Lester Kingsolving. Here's how that exchange went. Does president have any reaction to the... Announcement from the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta that AIDS is now an epidemic in 600, over 600 cases. Over a third of them are done. It's known as gay plague. 
<laughs> no, it is. I mean, it's a pretty serious thing that uh, one in every three people that get this have died, and I wondered if the president is aware of it. I don't have it. Are you? Do you? You don't have it. Well, I'm relieved to hear that. Do you? You didn't answer my question. How do you know? That's right. Speaks and much of the White House press corps were treating AIDS and its victims as jokes. President Reagan himself didn't utter the word AIDS and then only in response to a reporter's question until the fall of 1985, over four years into the devastation. When Tim's contract with Katz ended that same year, the couple decided to move west and begin a new chapter in Los Angeles. Not long after their move, they drove up to Malibu. We went out to Zuma Beach one day, and he said to me very tentatively, I really um, can't imagine my life without you, and I want to stay with you for the rest of my life. And I responded, I want to stay with you for the rest of my life. It was this really solemn moment. I like to think of it as uh, vows. I considered myself married to Tim. There was no legal way to do that at the time, and it was a commitment. And I'm so happy that it happened before he became ill, because there was no question but that I would see him through it. And I think he felt that. On the other side of the break, Tim Scott's last show, the ultimate tribute to The Dancer. What I did for love. Doing what we love. That's her anthem, What I Did for Love. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. I'm visiting tonight at the home of, of Tim Scott. I'll, I'll knock on the door now. Oh. Hello. Hello. Would you like to come in? I would like to come in. <laughs> I'm watching home video of Norman Buckley and Tim Scott it's sometime in late 1985 or early 1986, and they're joking around, giving a tour of their sunny two-bedroom apartment in West Hollywood. Here he is, cat of the year. 
we meet their cat, who just happens to be named Mo. Mo. There he is. Hi, Mo. Look at those eyes. The cat's eyes really look like the eyes on the back of my cat's sweatshirt. Tim and Norman seem happy. Why shouldn't they be? They're young, 30 years old. They make each other laugh. And career-wise, things are going well for both of them. At the time, Norman was working as an assistant editor on a horror movie called Trick or Treat, starring Gene Simmons of Kiss. He's a rock and roll nightmare. And during this period, Tim scored two film gigs. He was cast in the 4D spectacular Captain EO, shown exclusively at Disney parks. This was, at the time, the most expensive film per minute ever made. Tim is part of the enormous ensemble dancing behind Michael Jackson. Tim was also cast in the movie version of the musical A Chorus Line. It's a bit part. He plays Boy With Headband. Seriously, that's his screen credit. But so what? It was a job on a movie. Boy in the headband, head up. We even get to hear him sing, briefly. God, I really blew it. I really blew it. What I love about it is that it's very brief, but it very much captures Tim's spirit. It's a short, lovely cameo. And then in 1986, 10 years after he toured internationally in the stage production of A Chorus Line, Tim was cast in a European tour of the show. Okay, since it's come up a couple of times, let's talk for a moment about A Chorus Line. This musical is the ultimate tribute to dancers just like Tim. Not stars, not household names. Dancers struggling and auditioning for roles in the chorus. Not doing it with the expectation of becoming rich and famous, but doing it for the love of dancing. Tim was cast in the role of Mike, a dancer who's up for any challenge. Perfect for Tim. I mean, to have Tim's technique... His splits and uh, jumps and turns and all of that is quite spectacular. This is Broadway legend Bayork Lee. You were in the original King and I. Yes. <laughs> how old were you? I was five. By the way, I was fired at eight because I outgrew my costume. Bayork went on to play Connie in the original Broadway cast of A Chorus Line. A chorus line was conceived by the legendary dancer-turned-director Michael Bennett, who would himself die from AIDS. Bayork, the keeper of the chorus line flame, has been directing revivals and road companies of the show for decades. It is a tribute to the dancer. The audience comes in, and what Michael wanted to convey was that they were peeking in on an audition because no one has ever seen an audition outside of the people who are involved. One song that Tim Scott sang many times as part of the ensemble of a chorus line is What I Did for Love. It's a song about the short and sometimes painful careers of dancers. It pops up towards the end of the show after one of the dancers has had a serious accident and has to drop out of the industry altogether. The director asks the remaining dancers what they would say if they learned that they could never dance again. The character of Morales starts the song off. Kiss today goodbye. 
the sweetness and the sorrow Wish me luck the same to you But I can't regret what I did for love What I did for love The message of the song Whatever life throws at these artists, they'll face the future with the same bravery and undefeated optimism with which they pursued their careers, however short they may be. It's about survival, but also doing what we love. That's our anthem, what I did for love. You do it because you love it, whether you're dancing, singing, acting, or whatever you do. We do it because we love it. I think there's something really special about Tim Scott's last show being the show that pays tribute to the dancer. Yeah. <sighs> A few weeks into their European tour, Bayork noticed that Tim Scott was losing stamina. At the time, I did not know that he was ill. I think we were in Zurich and uh, he wasn't feeling well. He had no energy. At all. Tim was having holistic medications mailed to him on the road. He'd tried crystals, meditation, and other alternative remedies. They weren't working. He eventually left the tour. He left the tour. And he called me and he said, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. He said, I'm too old. I don't want to be a dancer anymore. I want to come home. Tim was still only 31. He went to the doctor and they did an endoscopy. He had a very light case of pneumocystis pneumonia, which was one of the ways that they diagnosed AIDS at the time. And uh, I said, okay, well, we'll take it a step at a time. But we essentially knew that it was a death sentence. The question was just how long. We hoped for some type of miraculous cure. We hoped something would happen. As with so many terminal conditions, though, Tim's illness didn't move in a straight line. By December 1986, he was experiencing an upswing. On Christmas Eve that year, he and Norman, underneath their Christmas tree in their West Hollywood apartment, take turns opening presents. What is it? It's a book. Who's it from? From Norm. The great towns of California. Oh, great. Sucks. Oh. The best American short stories, 1986. More socks. Don't want to sentimentalize it, and I don't want to... Um romanticize it, but it was a wonderful period of time. It sounds counterintuitive to say that, but it was a wonderful period of time because we were so deeply connected at that point. The next morning, they celebrate at a friend's home. Tim teaches the friend's three daughters a dance. Okay, we're going to go. Step, Maybe you're going to give me a kiss say the girls don't seem all that focused and i kind of want to jump into the videotape and tell them you're getting a free dance lesson from the original broadway mr mistopheles pull it together okay i'm back now not long after that christmas tim and norman took a road trip 
we drove across the Southwest and we went to the Grand Canyon and he went out on this uh, rock. It was very precarious. I was like, oh, please don't go out so far. Don't go out so far. And he went out on the end of this rock and did this pirouette. But after returning to Los Angeles, an especially virulent case of pneumonia sent Tim to the hospital. It was at that point I said, we have to tell your parents. We have to let them know. And his mother immediately flew out. She was this wonderful Italian woman who was a wonderful cook and took care of us. Tim's parents, Richard and Rosemary, stayed at a motel nearby. Tim's father, Richard Schnell, was still working as a technical writer for Motorola. Rosemary Schnell was a homemaker. Tim was their only child. When he gave his parents the news about his diagnosis, do you think that his mother suspected it anyway? They knew something was up. They couldn't have been better, though, in their response. They were lovely people, and I feel enormous gratitude to them. They accepted me. They loved me. They remained close to me for the rest of their lives. So many people during that period of time did not have the support of their parents. For many people in the theater, it was their chosen family, not their biological one, that rallied around them. The community had to help themselves. Women like Bayork Lee, who had grown up performing with so many gay men, who were like brothers to her, played a special role. We became angels. When we started hearing about all of these people, we started taking care of them. Just being with them to go to get their medicine or to feed them, helping them bathe, because people were afraid. These were our friends, and so we didn't have any fear. My best friends all died of AIDS. Most of my closest male friends that I met doing Guys and Dolls and Pearly and The Wiz and so forth, they all died. They all died. This is Ken Page again. It was devastating. And many, many other friends who, to varying degrees, some went home, just disappeared. Others had no home to go to because their families rejected them. Some of us as friend group at that time, which is something else I'll always treasure, those of us who gathered and rallied and supported each other. And if someone fell ill, you just gathered around them and did whatever you needed to do, including burial. Burial became a terrible challenge for the bereaved. Early on in Manhattan, only one funeral home, Redden's on 14th Street, was willing to accept the remains of the victims of AIDS. Now, it's hard to know how many people died during the early years of the epidemic. Families, churches, hospitals often lied about the cause of death. That's how deep the stigma was. And as David France, author of How to Survive a Plague, has reported, some gay men, when they detected a lesion or another symptom of infection, would kill themselves. Many of the dead ended up in unmarked potter's fields like Hart Island off the Bronx, the final resting place for the ostracized and abandoned. When Tim Scott wasn't in the hospital for an infection, he was at home. Betty Buckley was just down the street. I don't remember that I, that I was as supportive as I aspired to be. There wasn't a lot I could do. Yeah, I remember finding this puppy, this beautiful little dachshund puppy that I thought would be great to give to Tim. 
I gave him this puppy and he didn't want a puppy. <laughs> so I was I thought I was doing something to make him feel, you know, really comforted and engaged, but it was a wrong choice. I don't know. He'd lost a lot of weight, but I, I didn't see that. I didn't see that at the time. While I was there with him, he was just the person I loved, and I never really took in the fact that he was vanishing right before my eyes. Finally, on Halloween 1987, while Norman was driving him home from his latest hospital visit for pneumonia, Tim made an announcement. And he said, that's it. I don't want to go back to the hospital again. Tim would spend his remaining days at home. I've always felt that there was a beautiful symmetry to the relationship that Tim and I had. We were together for five years, and during the first two and a half years, I would say that he was the one who was taking care of me. He was the one that was helping me come into my own. And during the second two and a half years of our relationship, I became the caretaker. During those weeks, Norman rarely left Tim's side. If you're going to go through some major life trial, you would want to go through it with my brother Norman. It was incredibly admirable and inspiring watching him be there for this person that he loved so much. In the middle of one night, Norman woke up to find Tim sitting bolt upright in bed, wide awake, staring out into the distance. And I said, what's going on? He said, oh, nothing. He said, I'm just trying to measure where we are relative to that space out there. And I said, well, what space are you talking about? And he said, oh, it's not anything I could explain to you. There's just a lot more than we know. And I said, well, I'm, I'm sure that that's so. And he said, so are you ready for your big test? And I said, well, I, I don't really know what you mean by that, but I guess I'm uh, as ready as I ever will be. And he said, okay, we'll go back to sleep. And he patted me on the arm and uh, I went back to sleep. And then when I woke up, he was in a coma and he never woke up again. That was the last time I ever spoke to him. As difficult as that period of time was, it was also extraordinary. I felt deeply loved by him, and I deeply loved him. And it's funny, you know, you you don't think about these things for a long time, and then you talk about them, and suddenly the emotion comes back over you again. What do you think he meant by, are you ready for your big test? Are you ready to be on your own? Are you ready to uh, accept that you have to let go of me? <laughs> Who knows, you know? I mean, he was also on painkillers, you know? There's, there's all kinds of possibilities that maybe he was just hallucinating, but at least he was hallucinating in a particularly profound, poetic way. Tim's parents and friends gathered and took vigils as he remained comatose for about 10 days. It was Norman who was with Tim during his final moments. He took his last breath. I could see like his eyes, his eyes were very blue. And then all of a sudden there was just this point of light that just went It was almost like I saw the life force leave him. And uh, he died at 6.30 in the morning on uh, February 24th, 1988. Is it for gay men your age? particularly difficult that a lot of your contemporaries are no longer with us, died many years ago. Ken Page and I were sitting together sometime years after Tim had died, and I said, uh, where's all the gay men my age? And Ken said to me, Norman, they all died. We're a, a small number of survivors. 
the, the people our age, they're gone. It hit me like a ton of bricks when he said that. Four from the original Broadway cast of Cats died from AIDS. Tim was 32. Stephen Gelfer was 39. Reed Jones, who was wonderful in the role of Skimbleshanks, was 35. And Rene Clemente was 38. As a successful TV director of popular shows featuring picture-perfect teens and people in their 20s, Norman Buckley regularly works with young people who have little knowledge of the outbreak of the AIDS crisis. It's hard to explain to the younger generations just what a hellacious period of time that was in terms of the loss. I'm very aware that when I talk about my experiences that people can only understand certain things when they've experienced those things themselves. And I have compassion for that. So I try to just be patient. Ken Page has a tougher message for younger generations. What I want to say to them is don't be stupid. It's not gone. There's just ways of handling it. Don't be cavalier. Don't take it for granted that you're well and you're going to be well and there's a pill and there's this and that and you can do anything you want. Don't be stupid. People paid for what you know. People paid for the, the, the cocktails and the pills and the things that you have that make you able to not worry about how you have sex. Someone paid literally their lives for that. Don't forget that. Never forget. When Katz returned to Broadway in 2016, Ken Page was in the audience on opening night. But for him, it wasn't as much a revival as it was a remembrance. Mm-hmm. I went to the opening night. Rosie O'Donnell was sitting there to my left. And I said, oh, God, she goes, what's it like for you? She asked me. I said, I just see ghosts. I said, there's so many people up there with their makeup and all. It was pretty much the same. I said, I see Renee Clemente. I see Reed Jones. I see Tim Scott. I see Stephen Gelford right there in front of me on the stage. I was happy they were doing it, and I supported the revival and on and on and on. But it was also very difficult to sit and watch because you couldn't not go through the memory. Tim Scott was cremated. For his final resting place, Tim's parents and Norman decided on that very spot in Arizona where Tim had once pirouetted. And so we went out to to the Grand Canyon, the the five or six of us, and we went out on the end of that rock, which in retrospect is totally crazy because I look at pictures of it now and I think, oh my God, we could have all fallen off and joined him. With this episode, I wanted to pay tribute to all those artists whose names didn't make headlines when they died. And so I wrote to Tom Viola, the head of Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. It's one of the oldest and largest groups raising money to support artists living with HIV AIDS. I wanted to know what he might have to say about Tim Scott. I didn't know Tim Scott well, he wrote. But with Cats being such a smash hit when it opened, and Tim being so blazing hot as the original Mr. Mistopheles, he was one of the 80s most beautiful and popular Broadway dancers. Plus, he was a very sweet guy. Tim's passing from AIDS in 1988 was truly one of the deaths that galvanized the community into the very early efforts to do something that culminated in the founding of Equity Fights AIDS and Broadway Cares. We'll let Ken Page, 
the wise old Deuteronomy of cats have the final word. Those of us who have survived AIDS, this, that, the other, even whatever, just age, if we don't tell the story, who does? Because you can only tell it if you were there. And if we are not responsible in telling it and passing it on when people ask, like you have, then it dies, literally. And it's too valuable a story, whether it's in one person named Tim Scott or in any of the number of people we named from Cats or the greater number that were in the theater in New York at the time or the even greater number that was the world population that we lost. We who have survived have to tell the story. I hope you've enjoyed Season 3 of Mobituaries. If you were with us the first two seasons, thanks for sticking around. If you haven't heard our previous seasons, I hope you'll do a little delving. Either way, feel free to spread the word about Mobits. May I ask you to please rate and review this podcast? You can also follow Mobituaries on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at Moraka. And check out Mobituaries' Great Lives Worth Reliving the New York Times best-selling book, now available in paperback and audiobook. It includes plenty of stories not in the podcast. This episode of Mobituaries was produced by Francisco Robina. Our team of producers also includes Aaron Schrank, Wilco Martinez-Cachero, and me, Mo Rocca. It was edited by Maura Walls and engineered by Josh Hahn, with fact-checking by Naomi Barr. Our production company is Neon Hum Media. Our archival producer is Jamie Benson. Our theme music is written by Daniel Hart. Indispensable support from Craig Swagler, Dustin Gervais, Alan Pang, Reggie Bazile, and everyone at CBS News Radio. Special thanks to David France, Tom Viola, Bill Keith, Richard J. Alexander, Megan Marcus, Molly Raleigh, Stephen Spanbauer, and Alberto Robina. The invincible Aaron Schrank is our senior producer. Executive producers for Mobituaries include Steve Razies and Moraka. The series is created by yours truly. And as always, thanks to Rand Morrison and John Carp for helping breathe life into Mobituaries. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. 
Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Fistle Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.